Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and today we are going to talk about inequality and how it relates to human flourishing, or if there's any connection at all. So with us, I have Anthony Davies, who is the Milton Friedman Distinguished Fellow at the Foundation of Economic Education and Professor of Economics at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. He's also the co-host of the podcast Words and Numbers. Anthony, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. So, you know, inequality is a big deal to people on the left. And I know a lot of I know a lot of Christians who are somewhat concerned about inequality because it seems to them that there is a problem with some people and more specifically a small number of people having a lot of wealth, having a lot of money or control or however they see things. And, you know, I think it's important for us to consider you know, maybe they have maybe they have something to be worried about, and if they do, then what would be the you know what would be the things that we how would we address those problems? Or maybe there's no problems at all, and maybe it's just a matter of you know thinking about the matter more clearly. And I think an economist like yourself is somebody who's going to be able to help us sort of sort through some of the some of the claims, some of the you know misconceptions about what it means to say that we have you know great inequality and so forth. So I, I think I'd want to start with one of the most common things that, you know, I've heard a lot of economists start off with that describe the issues in understanding the, the, the whole frame is the difference between wealth inequality and income inequality, because those things often get thrown around equal, as equals or like as if it doesn't matter to people who care about inequality. They're like, well, it doesn't matter. It's just there's, you know, there's five people who own, you know, more wealth than everyone else or something. Yeah, and I think there, there's a third that we actually have to start at, and that's political inequality. Because in the founding documents, when the founders talk about all people are created equal, they mean it in this third sense of political equality. And what they mean by that is that no one of us has the right to rule over anyone else. In that sense, we are we are equal. So when people today use the word inequality, they tend not to mean it in that sense. They tend to mean, as you say, either income inequality mm. or wealth inequality. And of course, the two are related. When, when I earn money, that's income. And if I save some of it, that becomes part of my wealth. So think of a bathtub. The water flowing in from the spigot is income. The tub of water is wealth. Mm. And, and so you can get these odd situations like you can have a lot of wealth with no income. You can also have a lot of income with no wealth. For example, if I, I've worked all my life, I've saved a bunch of money and I'm now retired. Well, my income is now zero, but I have a lot of wealth. I mm. have a mm -hmm. big savings account. Conversely, you know, I could earn a lot of money and spend all of it. I don't save anything, in which case I have a lot of income and no wealth. How does that affect the way we how should how does that affect the way economists think about and sort of parse the data of what I mean, because, you know, it's it's a lot of data to think about because everybody's situation is different. 
It, this is a thing. Economists don't aren't nearly as concerned about inequality. There are exceptions, but generally speaking, economists aren't nearly as concerned about income and wealth inequality as as non-economists are. And I believe the difference comes down to you. You used this sentence earlier. You said some people have a lot of wealth. Technically, that's not the right verb. The right verb is create. You create wealth. And if you use the right verb, all of a sudden, this whole question of income or, or wealth inequality takes on a completely different tenor. Because if you understand that wealth isn't something that falls out of the sky and we elbow each other out of the way to get it, and this mm -hmm. guy got more than I did, you realize instead that wealth is created. You can create as much as you want. The way you create wealth or the way you create income is by providing things to others in your community that who like these things better than they like the dollars in their pockets. So they give you the dollars and you give them this thing that you've produced. And as you build up these dollars, well, this is now your income, it's your wealth. And so wealth and income are, are created. And if you use the right verb, your sentence now reads something like this, 10% um, of the people create 90% of the wealth, that has a very different feel to it than the way we normally say it, that 10% of the people have 90% of the wealth. Well, I really like how you take it that way, because I think the verb uh, is there, because there is something, you know, there, there is an action happening here. And, you know, you and I both know, and I think a lot of people know that the wealth that has been created in, in the past 100 to 300 years has been exponential growth. You know, we've, we've seen the hockey stick chart of, you know, the prosperity of the West, of the whole entire globe, actually. And so there is something that's been created there. Now, I don't know if that's a satisfactory answer to a lot of people who are on the left because they see billionaires as they see things from maybe and you can kind of comment on this. I guess my my suspicion is that they see things in terms of the exploitation theory of labor, that billionaires are getting rich off the backs of people who are maybe not poor, poor people, but like they're the average Joe um, is, you know, doing backbreaking labor or just labor that they're slightly underpaid or even really underpaid. And they don't have the right benefits. They don't have all the like, you know, normal things that we would expect people to kind of have in a job. And the, the wealthy are getting wealthier on the backs of the poor. So you know, that whole Marxist, you know, labor theory. Do, do you think that that might be why they they calculate it that way? That's like, well, it doesn't matter how it's got, you know, okay, fine. They've created it, but, you know, they did it off the backs of the poor people. Yeah, there, there are three problems here with this approach. And that's not to say that throughout history, billionaires have never become billionaires on the backs of the poor. But when you're dealing in a free market environment, that is, nobody is holding a gun to your head saying you will do this. The likelihood of billionaires becoming billionaires on the backs of the poor falls to near zero. Instead, I suggest there are three other problems going on here that's this fueling this observation. One is we have a tendency to look at dollars rather than goods and services. So I ask my students, how many of you has a billion dollars? And of course, nobody raises their hands. But I say, how many of you have smartphones? Every single hand in the room goes up. Well, what's going on here? 
Steve Jobs and people like him became billionaires because they offered us something we liked better than our money. They offered us those smartphones. And we happily gave them our money in exchange for the smartphones. And so when all the dust settles, you look at the dollar bills and you see you know, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs sitting on piles of dollars, but we're completely ignoring the other half of the equation, which is the rest of us are sitting on all these cell phones. So currently in the United States, virtually 100% of people over the age 18 have smartphones. So if you want to make an argument, for example, that Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, they should give back half of their money. Okay, well, then that means the rest of us need to give back half of our cell phones because that was the other half of the transaction. So this is one problem is focusing on the dollars as opposed to focusing on the goods and services. Another problem is an observation bias. We only see the billionaires who were successful. We don't see the hundreds of times, perhaps thousands of times more uh, entrepreneurs who were unsuccessful. And when an entrepreneur comes up with an idea, that entrepreneur takes on a tremendous amount of risk, uh, you know, taking time away from earning a steady paycheck to pursuing this thing that might work, might not work, mortgaging his house to pay for the thing, taking on investors and having to give them a portion of the company, tremendous amount of risk. And if the risk pans out, the entrepreneur becomes a billionaire. If it doesn't, the entrepreneur goes away. Now, from the rest of our perspectives, what happens is the entrepreneurs that make it, they become billionaires. How do they become billionaires? By giving us things we want. The ones that fail, well, they tried to give us things we didn't want and they go away. But when we, when we ask the question, well, what's going on with billionaires? We only look at that small fraction who made it. We're ignoring all the, the many, many billionaires who didn't. And so when we turn to that small fraction that made it and, and say, we're going to make life more difficult for you, we're going to take some of this money that, that you've earned through voluntary transactions, we send a signal to entrepreneurs everywhere. Be careful, because if you try something new and it blows up on your face, well, that's on you. But if you're successful, we're going to vilify you and mm -hmm. take part of what you've earned. So that's, that's the second problem. The third problem is we completely ignore, when we talk about inequality, mobility. So yes, it's the case. There's you know X percent of people living in poverty in this country. But the vast majority of the people living in poverty in the country today, in five years, will no longer be living in poverty. And a decent chunk of the people who are in the top 1% today, in another five years, won't be. There's tremendous amount of movement back and forth. It's as if we make the same error as if we're in high school and we look around and out of our high school, 25% of us are seniors, 25% are freshmen. And we graduate, we come back for our reunion and we look at the high school and 25% of the students are seniors and 25% are freshmen. And we conclude, well, nobody must ever graduate from this school <laughs> because always there's 25% of them are freshmen. Well, yes, but it's a different 25% each year. And income works the same way. It doesn't work that way for everybody, but for the vast majority of people, we all move through these, these quintiles. At some point, we're poor. At some other point, we're much better off. Yeah. Well, it reminds me, I think Thomas Sowell said it, that people don't live in quintiles. They, they have That's real perfect. lives. Yeah, yeah. What is, your, what is your typical reaction to, just to stick on the exploitation theory of labor, just generally, it, how was Marx wrong there? Marx 
Marx gets several things wrong. First off, Marx is not an economist. Um, I've had people say to me, well, why don't you teach Marxian economics in your economics department? I said, well, because it's not economics. Marx was a philosopher who dabbled in economics, and he gets several very fundamental things wrong. One of the things he gets wrong is the idea that a thing has value because it has labor embodied in it. This is what, what's called the labor theory of value. So if I spend uh, an hour baking a mud pie and an hour baking an apple pie, those two pies have the same value because they each represent an hour of my labor. And the fact is, if the labor theory of value were correct, economies themselves wouldn't exist because no one would have an incentive to engage in any kind of exchange. Instead, what drives value is a subjective valuation. That is, the apple pie has some value to me. And we exchange precisely because the apple pie that I make has some value to me, and the apple pie that I make has some value to you. And if you value the apple pie more than I do, you'll be willing to give me money for it. And I'll be happy to take the money. And we both walk away better off. The transaction is not a zero sum where one of us gets and the other one gives. It's, it's a mutually beneficial exchange. We both walk away with something. I walk away with the dollars. You walk away with the apple pie. So then what would be your response to – so the, the exploitation thing with respect to employment, okay? So, you know, people will say, well, Amazon workers aren't really mistreated because they're not leaving because they've identified that for them it's the best option they have. So I could imagine that Amazon – and again, I don't want to pick on Amazon. I love Amazon – um, but we could imagine any big retailer or some somebody like Amazon coming into a market where people are desperately poor and so they pay them slightly better wages, but it just makes a killing for them. Whereas, you know, um, and, and, and I think people like look at that and say, well, look, they're they're taking advantage of, a, of the plight of the poor and only paying them, you know, slightly above minimum wage or maybe they're only paying the minimum wage because they have to. How does how is that not in some sense exploitative? Well, I guess there are two things going on here. One is from the perspective of the company. If I can move in with a company into an area where there's a lot of unemployed people and I can employ them at a lower cost than I would otherwise because, well, they're desperate. They don't have jobs. Clearly, if no, if from no other perspective, from a, from a selfish perspective, that's good for me. And the thing that makes us uncomfortable, but it's true nonetheless, is that from their perspective, it's good for them. Now, would it be better if I paid them more money? Yes, it would. It would be better for them. But that's not the question. The question is, would it be better for them if I didn't come in and offer them jobs? Or would it be better if I came in and offered them jobs? And clearly, it's better for them if I come in and offer jobs. How do I know? Because they willingly accept them. Now, here's the thing. If I can do that, I can move into an area where there's a lot of unemployment and hire people at you know, rock bottom prices. I'm going to make a lot of money doing that. And that sends a signal to other entrepreneurs that they should come in here too, because they could also make a killing. And so other entrepreneurs start coming in and they're doing the same thing I'm doing. They're paying rock bottom prices, except they have to pay a little bit more because I've already hired a bunch of people. And as more and more entrepreneurs come in, they start competing with each other. And before you know it, the wage rate has moved up to a much higher level 
because these entrepreneurs are competing for the workforce. If conversely, we look at the situation and say, this is wrong. You shouldn't come in here and pay them rock bottom prices. You should pay them a living wage. And we're going to encode this into the law. So you must do it. Okay, fine. But what signal does that send to other entrepreneurs? It sends them the signal, don't bother coming in here. And so what happens? I'll hire some people. I'll pay them the living wage. But a lot of them are going to remain unemployed. And no more entrepreneurs will come in to employ them because those entrepreneurs say there's no deal to be had here. And so we have to think when we formulate policy that affects human beings, and we're driven rightly so by our hearts seeing that there's a problem here, we have to be very careful because the knee-jerk reaction that would quell our hearts and make us feel good about what we're doing is often something that long-term actually makes the people worse off. I think you're getting at the whole seen and unseen problem. Yes, yeah. that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So let's let's use that to kind of jump into a couple of cliches I've written down here that, you know, the left often comes up. And the most recent one that I've noticed is uh, Robert Reich, I think is how you pronounce his last name. Um, I've only I've never watched anything by him, so I can't quite know how he pronounces his own name. And he's uh, not an economist either, by yeah, the way. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he's he's an intelligent guy and he can he can weave weave a story for he, here's the problem that he's weaving recently is that Jeff Bezos bought this huge mansion. Uh, and at the same time, the Whole Foods uh, part-time employee benefits were cut. And, you know, one way of thinking about this in my mind, the immediate thing that I thought of was this isn't a battle between Jeff Bezos's income or wealth versus the average Whole Foods worker or even for that matter, the Amazon worker. This is a this is the, the competition is really between the the jobs and labor and wealth created in the uh, purchase and building of a mansion and all of the services that that entails and the worker. So maybe it's not a, a complete way of thinking about it. How do you, what, what's your reaction to that kind of, you know, tweet? That's that's basically, it was a tweet that I saw. Yeah, one of the things that people get wrong here, and I've seen Robert Wright get this wrong repeatedly, is that a wage isn't a lever that you can just throw and now, you know, people are earning more money. It's not a lever that sets the value of the labor. It's a metric that reflects the value of the labor. The analogy I give is this. You've got a kid and the kid's running a, a fever. So you, you stick the, the thermometer in there and you pull it out and the thermometer says 104. And this is a problem. Now, two ways you might deal with this. One is you give the kid medicine to bring the fever down. The other is you scratch the numbers off and you write in better numbers. <laughs> And of course, everybody looks at it and says, well, that second thing is stupid. But that's exactly what we do with things like a minimum wage or a living wage. We're not changing the underlying reality. The underlying reality is that people's labor doesn't have enough value. Instead, we're changing the metric. And we're saying, well, let's just let's just alter this number and make it a higher number. You don't solve anything. You don't solve the problem when you do this. Mm -hmm. you, now, you certainly do feel better about yourself. But I think that's actually a dangerous thing because you feel better about yourself. So you go and you turn your attention somewhere else thinking, well, I've solved this problem. I can now pay attention to something else. Meanwhile, that problem festers. And now you're not only have you not addressed it, you're now not even aware of it. Well, I think the complaint, though, is that, you know, Bezos could afford to live in a much smaller mansion and that, you know, they didn't have to sacrifice the employee benefits. Like there, there's enough profit in the company to make sure that employees have the right benefits, quote unquote, right benefits. Yeah, I, I guess that's that's the case. I had a conversation with somebody along these lines recently on Twitter, of all places. And um, 
this person was saying, well, Bezos along these lines as well, Bezos could pay, afford to pay his workers more. And if you, th- this person was talking about all Amazon workers. Mm-hmm. If you do the math, it actually doesn't work out that way. Amazon has so many workers that you could cut Bezos' salary to zero, divide it up amongst all the Amazon workers, and each one would get a fraction of a penny more per hour. Conversely, however, if you were to charge each person who buys off of Amazon an extra $2 and then pooled those $2 and gave them to the workers, the workers could all earn above 15 bucks an hour. And so I said this to the person and and the person said in response, no, I'm happy with Amazon. I don't want to pay more. (laughs) And notice the problem here. The cost should not be borne by by him. Yeah. Here's a problem. And I want to force somebody else to deal with it, but I'm not willing to pay for it myself. Well, if, if the person is not willing to pay for it, why should we, if we're all equal in, in a political sense, why is it that this person should be allowed to force Bezos to pay it when this person is not willing to pay it? Yeah. You know, you're talking about the the, the, value, the economic value of someone's labor. And I can, I can, you know, again, I have this, you know, progressive person in my head saying, yeah, but what about this, right? And one of the things that I think might be said would be, well, people's ability to live not comfortably, but just live with the basic necessities shouldn't depend on their economic contribution to the economy and that there should be some sort because we have all this wealth in our country, in our world even, and what we we should have the basic necessities to, you know, eat, sleep, shelter, that kind of thing, you know, those basic things, healthcare, I know that people will talk about that, that our economic value is something different and that, you know, our human value should determine that we are, you know, permitted to live, you know, with the bare necessities. Yeah. And the problem with that is bare necessities is a fluid concept mm-hmm. because we say things like this in the United States. And, you know, there are certain things people should earn a living wage and there are certain things that, sh- that everyone should have regardless of of how how much you contribute. And the problem with that is we have become so ungodly rich in this country, we have lost sight of what real poverty is. So take, for example, a worker earning $7.25 an hour in the United States, working full time. We'd look at that and say, well, this is is horrible poverty, $7.25 an hour, uh, full time work. And yet, if you look at planet Earth, and you adjust for differences in cost of living across countries, that's a middle-class income. Quite literally, what we call poverty, the rest of the world calls middle-class. That's how rich we have become. Mm-hmm. In fact, and you can make this comparison not just across the across countries, but across time. The average 725 an hour worker today has more purchasing power than the average middle-class American 100 years ago. And so, you know, should it be the case, should it be the case that everyone should have basic necessities? My first answer is yes, but be careful what you mean by basic necessities, because it's easy to become so rich that you think that what you think is poverty actually isn't poverty at all. Mm-hmm. But my second answer is, yeah, we do have an obligation. We have an obligation, those of us who have more, to care for those who have less. But it's a moral obligation. It's not a legal obligation. And government is not a force of morality. It's a force of legalism. To fulfill a moral obligation requires free will. If I do not have free will, there is no moral component. 
And when we have the government come in and say, okay, we're going to take this money from this guy and give it to that guy, the free will is gone. You're no longer behaving morally. At best, you're behaving amorally. Well, I think that's a good uh, segue into kind of my next question here. You know, there's a there's a popular phrase uh, from the Christian left that budgets are moral documents. And, you know, what they do is they look at a budget proposed by a president or even, you know, members of Congress. Well, I guess the president makes a budget, you know, they or whatever's passed. And they say, ah, oh, look, they cut funding for this, you know, thing we should tug at our hearts, and they gave tax cuts to people like Jeff Bezos. And so in the the storytelling there, it's basically, well, Jeff Bezos gets a big tax break and and any other wealthy person. And all these other these these teachers and their special, you know, the special needs programs or whatever it is, they they've just got their funding cut. So how how can we think of that big picture? Because there's clearly more going on there. First off, I really dislike the phrase moral document that has no meaning whatsoever, right? It sounds really nice. And so, you know, our hearts all go a flutter when we hear it. It has no meaning. Moral action can only be undertaken individually. Moral action cannot be undertaken collectively. Because if we take a vote and 51% of us say we should do X for moral reasons, the other 49% are going to be forced to do X, and, and therefore the moral, com- the moral factor is now gone because the morality requires free will. Now, we can say things, and I agree 100%, that people should be treated equally. If we're going to tax this guy at, at what pick a number, 20% of his income, we should tax the other guy at 20% of his income. That I have no problem with. What I do have a problem with is what you were, it sounded like you were hinting at later, which is it's not right that Bezos should have tax cuts, tax breaks that other people don't have, but teachers should have tax breaks that other people don't have. Well, now that's no longer pursuing a principle of equality. It's now simply that you believe that your preferred people should get tax breaks versus my preferred people. If we want to talk about a moral tax structure, it's a tax structure that reflects the fact that none of us has the right to rule over anyone else. And so to the extent that we tax, everyone should be taxed exactly the same. Hey, everybody, Bob Murphy here. Wanted to let you know that on April 20th of 2020, I am going to be debating at the Soho Forum in New York City. And the topic is going to be whether Christians should support free market capitalism. So, of course, I'm going to be in the affirmative My opponent, Tony Campola, is going to be in the negative. If you're interested, I encourage you to get tickets sooner rather than later. Go to libertarianchristians.com slash debate and use the promo code LCI25, all lowercase, in order to get 25% off the ticket price. So again, that's libertarianchristians.com slash debate. Use promo code LCI25, all lowercase. Hope to see you there. Okay, so that leads to the next thing. It's like, well, the wealthy don't pay their fair share, which, again, the the word fair share probably has, you know, multiple meanings that no one has really completely defined because depending on how you cut the math, they pay an absorbent amount of their fair share that, you know, possibly, I mean, I don't know about your situation, but you and I don't pay. Um, You know, Jeff Bezos pays way more than you and I do, I think. Um, so what do, what are this whole the wealthy need to pay their fair share mantra? I mean, I've heard this for, I mean, it's been decades and decades. Yeah, this is another phrase I really dislike, the fair share thing. And the reason I dislike it is because no one, in my experience, who has advocated for the rich to pay their fair share 
is prepared to tell me what that fair share is. And if you're not prepared to put a number to it, then really what you mean is they should pay more. And there's no end to that. No matter how much they pay, they could always pay more. So, so my first question is, if someone believes that the rich should pay their fair share, tell me what that fair share is. Oh, I know they, what it is. It's just a little bit more. It's just a little bit more. Right, right. That's, it never ends. Now, I've asked my students this repeatedly over the course of a decade. Tell me, you know, let's talk about the top 1%. Let's talk about middle income Americans. And let's talk about the poorest 20%. What do you think a fair share is? And when I talk about fair share, I make it very easy. I say, let's take all of their income from all sources. doesn't matter whether it's capital gains or wages or whatever. Take it all and give me no deductions, no exemptions, just some X percentage. What percentage of that pile of money should they pay? And of course, the numbers vary, but there's an interesting pattern. Consistently, students come in at around 20 to 30% for the top 1%. 20% to 30% of all their of their money they should pay. For middle-income Americans, they consistently come in around 10 to 15%. And for the poorest Americans, they come in around 0 to 5%. So this is what people at a gut level tell me they believe is fair. Now, we can go to the actual numbers. Congressional Budget Office collects these figures. And if you take all of the money that people earn from all sources, interest, income, capital, gains, inheritance, the whole thing, everything, put it together and ask the question, what fraction, after you've done your deductions and exemptions and write-offs and all of this, what fraction of that pile of money did you actually pay to the federal government? It turns out that the top 1% pay around 33% of their incomes to the federal government. Middle-income Americans pay around 11%, and the poorest Americans pay around 5% to 10%, somewhere in that range. So the numbers start to look very similar to the things that right now that my, my students would say is fair, except that we've left out something. And what we've left out are transfers. That is, the federal government doesn't only take money from people, it also gives money to people. Some of it comes, a large portion of it comes in the form of social security benefits, some of it comes in the form of earned income tax credits. But if you account for these, we call them transfers, federal government giving money to people, it turns out that the top 40% of Americans are net payers. The bottom 60% actually receive back from the federal government more than they paid in in the first place. So the net, the net tax rate for middle-income Americans is somewhere around negative 3%. And for the poorest Americans, it's like negative 50%. And, and this leads to this other thing that people say is, well, tax cuts are tax cuts for the rich. Yeah, our federal tax code has become so progressive that by definition, pretty much every tax cut is a tax cut for the rich because on average, that's the only people who are paying. <laughs> Well, and that's also not to ignore that people are paying, you know, uh, other taxes, but we're talking about strictly, in this case, income tax, right? No, no, no. I'm counting income, any any tax paid to the federal government, income tax, payroll tax, capital gains tax. Now, it does... Well, well what I mean, like the, the, the average person is still paying Social Security tax and they're not getting that back immediately. Like they're not getting that back on their returns. No, that's correct. You get it back later, right? Okay. Um, but it, it does not count... Uh, for example, sales taxes, state and local taxes, property taxes, those things aren't included. And of course, they vary by state. Okay. So then explain why Amazon didn't pay any income taxes 
as a company in, I think it was 2018, because it was last year that this kind of came out, that in 2018, they didn't pay any income taxes. They made all this money and didn't pay any income taxes. And, and I'm not arguing with you. I just, right. I don't know how to explain this to people. Yeah, Bernie loves to talk about this, that, that they paid no income tax. And, and he, he says this and he points to Amazon, like he, like Amazon is a problem. Well, the amount of tax that Amazon paid is a result of the tax code, which Bernie and his colleagues wrote, right? So if there's a problem here, mm -hmm. he needs to be looking in his own house. Yeah. But nonetheless, now it is the case, it is the case that Amazon paid no income tax. They did, there were other taxes they did pay. In, in fact, in total, Amazon paid that same year over a billion dollars in taxes. They paid no income tax because Congress wrote the tax law to encourage companies to invest. And so it said to companies, look, if you invest a bunch of money in creating new jobs, you can take the, the expense here and write it off over future years, which is what Amazon did. So, you know, this business about Amazon opening new offices in, in New York City or Washington, wherever it is they ended up opening them, they're opening those offices, spending a tremendous amount of money opening these new offices, creating whatever it was. I think it was 50,000 jobs they're creating in response to the very tax law that Bernie Sanders is now decrying. Okay, so so at some point, if Amazon stops investing more and more under this encouragement, like maybe there's a, there's a plateau in their business plan, they will end up paying the taxes. Oh yeah, it's not that they're it, the law is not that they just get to pay no taxes forever. They get to write off the the cost of that investment yeah. over against future years' profits. So once they have once they have written off the cost of that investment, then they're back on paying taxes the same as everybody else. But the whole point is Congress wrote the tax code specifically like that to encourage companies to do what Amazon subsequently did, which is to invest in creating new jobs. Okay, so the the trade-off is that uh, all these new jobs that were created uh, could have not been created and Amazon would pay more money to the federal government. That that would right. be the situation. Okay. All right. So let's talk a little bit about wealth and just sort of the moral way in which we think about things. I mean, I jokingly inserted there that, you know, what's the right amount of fair share? And I just kind of inserted and said, well, just a little bit more. And that is that is uh, presumably, I think, what Rockefeller said when someone said, well, how much wealth is enough? And he was like, well, just a little bit more. And I think a lot of people have a sense in which we want to make a, a judgment on other people like Jeff Bezos or even for that matter, people like Bernie Sanders who earned his million, a few million bucks or whatever amount of wealth he has because of his book, but because of his own labor. We want to say, well, no one needs that much. You know, no one needs however many billions that Jeff Bezos is worth. No, you know, Steve Jobs didn't need what he was worth or Tim Cook or, you know, any of these people. Um, and so how do we make a moral judgment? I mean, I don't know. I, I, I guess the question here for you is what's the economic, what's going on there economically when someone is quote unquote worth uh, that amount of money? Well, there's two things going on here. The first one is the first one is a warning that you know we can say, well, nobody needs that much money. Okay, well, let's stop and think a moment. We are amongst the richest people in human history, living in the richest planet, uh, richest country on the planet in human history, and we're looking up to the few people who have more than we do, saying nobody needs that much money. Okay. Why don't we turn around and look at the oceans of humanity below us who have less than we do? 
who could rightly be saying to us, well, nobody needs all that. You don't need Disney Plus or Netflix. Exactly. You don't need a cell phone. You don't need, you know, central air conditioning. So, you know, if that's the argument we're going to we're going to make, we need to be cleaning up our own house first. So everybody move into one bedroom apartments, give up your car, start, you know, walking to work or taking the bus, get rid of your cell phone, all that money, give it to the poor. And then we can talk about whether somebody needs billions of dollars. So that's the warning. The second thing here is is a correction. And that is we have this tendency to think of the rich as hoarding wealth. And so you say, well, there's this billionaire and he has billions of dollars and he's just sitting on it as, as if he somehow sucked it out of the economy. And sometimes people will follow with, well, if the billionaire spent that money, that would stimulate the economy and that would be better for the rest of us. Well, the fact is that that money is being spent. It's just not the billionaire who's spending it. What happens with the billionaire's wealth? It's invested in stocks, in companies, some of it directly into banks as as savings. And what happens? The companies use that money to create jobs, to expand. The banks turn around and loan that money out to people who want to borrow, to build a house or to buy a car or an education or whatever it is. All of the billionaires' billions are being spent. They're just not being spent by the billionaire. They're being spent by somebody else. Okay, so what's happening there is their wealth is doing something that is often unseen. And, you know, I don't think it takes an economics degree to kind of wrap your head around that. It's like the money isn't just, it's not cash, it's not another mattress. In fact, they probably, I mean, my guess is they can't really just, if they wanted to take it out of the economy, it would be a tremendous act to do so. Um, It's not like they could just cash it out. Uh, not only that, they come out with a lot less. So take Bill Gates. I don't know what his current wealth is. Let's say $90 billion. Um, that's not $90 billion cash. It's in it's in stocks and bonds and whatnot. If he were to cash that out immediately, he would tank the stock market. And so he wouldn't end up with $90 billion. He'd end up with a lot less. What? I don't know. But, so, but something. But the fact is, it's not like he has $90 billion bills sitting in his living room. So you're saying that his wealth benefits us. Yes, 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 it does. <laughs> uh, that That is tough to wrap your head around. And I think it's an important thing to to point out. I think another issue that is, that people talk about is what that wealth can buy them now. So, so Bill Gates can't take out all 90 billion, but he can spend a few billion getting politicians to um, write regulations so that he doesn't have to pay as much or that he can, you know, expatriate the taxes, you know, that's paid in other countries and things like that. I've I've been, you know, in kind of researching why people really don't like income inequality or wealth inequality in general is that it creates problems for democracy. It creates problems morally because what happens is when the wealth when wealth concentrates and we all don't get wealthy together but there's just this like handful at the top that what they tie their money up in uh, has adverse effects on the rest of us in ways that we have no either no or very little power to actually reclaim, you know, balance of of democracy or or power there. Yeah, and to the extent that the majority of of economists do care about income inequality, it's on this point, and that is that the rich can. Um, you know, as you say, in effect, buy elections or buy buy regulations, pay off, uh, um, influence politicians to get favorable treatment under the law. Now, that is a problem. But notice something. It's not an economic problem. 
It's a political problem. That is that we we are in a society in which political favors are for sale. Now, that largely is the case in the United States, and it is largely the case because we have allowed the federal government to become unloosed from its constitutional constraints. Under Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, there is a list of about nine things that the federal government is allowed to do. And the federal government today does tens of thousands of things more than what's listed in Article 1, Section 8. The more the federal government does, the more valuable it becomes for people with money to turn to politicians and say, well, write this regulation to help me out, to help my business. And of course, it's not as seedy as that. They'll make good arguments as to why a particular regulation would be in the interest of consumer safety or would actually help me to create jobs which would help people. But really what they're doing is trying to influence legislation to help them and their companies. That is the antithesis of political equality. And that's the root problem. It's not an economic inequality. That's the symptom of the disease. The disease is the political inequality. So with with the political inequality angle, you know, I, I agree with you. At the same time, I wonder, well, how much of a state of society this really this problem really is? Or is it really just a problem with our particular setup of an arrangement of of laws? Like in other words, in any particular society, there's going to be there's going to be the concentration of wealth, and we have to keep that wealth from being from purchasing power, and that it's always going to be possible for that to happen. So therefore, we shouldn't let the wealth happen in the first place. That's kind of the argument I've heard from people. Yeah, the the, the problem is that there's something there's something for sale, the political power, and if we try and and address it from the back end of getting rid of the the billionaires. We don't we don't correct the root problem. The root problem is that there's political power for sale. And if you don't have billionaires paying dollars, you'll have somebody else paying something else. And it the most simplest case if there's nothing for anybody to pay to buy the political power, the political power will will be directed to help cronies, people who are my relatives, my friends. There's nothing you can do to stop the political power from being directed towards special interests other than eliminate the political power. Mm, The way you do that is through a constitutionally restrained government. Yeah. Okay. So one more, one more thought here, and then I'll maybe get some overall take uh, from you on this um, is the whole idea of charity that if you if you reduce things like marginal tax rates that actual charity by the wealthy actually decreases because it costs them more to give yeah th- there have been studies that show this and this is correct but i think we think about we think about it incorrectly if our focus is if our focus is on how do we tweak the tax code to encourage people to give more If you look at the numbers, Americans are amazingly generous. Americans donate to charities annually more than the federal government spends on all of its welfare programs combined. We're tremendously generous people. And that's where, particularly from a Christian perspective, when you talk about helping the poor, that's where it needs to happen. It's not something that should be rooted through government. Because not only because of all the inefficiencies of government, 
but because when the rich aid the poor, the two groups come together in community and they're, they're people who are giving and people who are needing and there's a connection that's made. When we introduce the government, we break that connection. We break that community and we reduce the, the poor to be, to be problems that we have to solve, mouths that we have to feed. And we dehumanize the rich by making them pockets to be picked for doing what we want to do. Inserting the government between those two groups may, I don't think it will, but it may help solve the problem of poverty but you have removed all of the humanity from it. And if you remove the humanity, why bother? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's one of my biggest, you know, kind of underlying concerns about the whole, you know, achievement of something. I opened this up talking about human flourishing, the achievement of something like the common good or human flourishing or, you know, shalom, however you want to phrase it, is that relationships aren't restored between, you know, in in a just tax tax your way out of this problem situation or redistribution and all of that. You know, it doesn't, I don't see the kingdom of God, you know, embodied in a tax structure that people are just writing a larger check than they otherwise would and other people are receiving, you know, larger sums of money from the government through that system than they otherwise would. I mean, yeah, on the one hand, results are what they are. And even in theory, if people are no longer destitute because of our tax system, okay, that's one outcome that's that's not bad, but it doesn't it doesn't show or demonstrate the kind of the kind of community and fellowship and I don't know. I just want to call it human flourishing. Like we're not flourishing together. We're just writing each other checks and we can not be bothered with those poor people over there because I wrote my check to the government and the government's going to take care of them. You know, there's an attitude issue there. You're absolutely right. I, I think it's even worse than what you've described because it's not simply that we, we've broken community, that the, the two groups aren't coming together. But when you insert the government, it's very easy for the poor, instead of seeing this money coming to them as gifts freely given, they can come to see it as entitlements. It's what they're owed. Hmm. And similarly, the rich, instead of seeing it as I'm giving to people who need, they start to resent. And, and so not only have you broken the two groups apart, but you've changed their attitudes to the whole process from, from giving and thanks to resentment and entitlement. Well, we have talked about so many of these issues that deal with economics and directly with, you know, inequality, but you actually host a podcast that talks about more than just this one topic. That's Um, right. So tell us a little bit about your podcast because I've enjoyed listening to it. It's not super lengthy and it's a conversation. So it's really, it's really entertaining. So tell us about what you cover and what the purpose is. My podcast is Words and Numbers. Uh, I co-host it with my colleague, James Harrigan, who's a political scientist and we come out, we're half hour episodes, we come out every Wednesday, and we talk about stuff like this, all sorts of things that, that are going on in the world through the eyes of an economist and a political scientist. So you can find us on all the major podcast players and also on wordsandnumbers.org. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining us to talk about uh, what I think is an important issue to consider, and I has definitely been educated on this during this conversation, and I hope our listeners will as well. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. 
If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calltofreedombook.com.